Some very honest questions there, huh? Powerful in their, in their honesty and in how they reflect what I suspect all of us have struggled with. Questions of, of what do you believe? How do you believe? How does faith make sense? And as we're uh, here in the second week of this series, Failed Christians, it's a bit of a burning question. Is it a failure to have doubts? Is it a failure not to? Where does that all come together? Uh, so welcome, I guess, as we engage this conversation. Uh, my name's Jason, by the way, one of the pastors here. And, and I, too, uh, have those doubts. In fact, my faith story from early on, or as early as it kind of paid, I started paying attention, was in my early teen years. Didn't grow up in a Christian family, uh, not even a family that went to church, just good kind of American people, you know, but, you know, did the Pledge of Allegiance, Grace at Thanksgiving, that kind of stuff. Uh, and so for me, exploring faith had the benefits of being um, kind of on my own. I'd also had some drawbacks of being you know, on my own. <laughs> Uh, and I, I think for myself, I don't think I'm delusional here, I'm making this up, and it was a very intellectual pursuit. That for me, coming to faith in Christ in my early teen years, uh, as much as an early teen can be intellectual, uh, despite their own opinion of themselves, mine was pretty strong, sadly still is at times, the, uh, the idea that that some of the questions that were raised there, if those weren't addressed for me, I just wasn't going to buy it. If there wasn't something that was internally consistent at least, that at least amongst themselves, Christians and what they were saying, it made sense, it hung together, that how they said they should live and how they actually lived, and even when they failed and they did, how they recognized those failures and what they did about it, that would matter. But beyond just the bubble, how did that faith engage the world outside itself? And if I couldn't connect some of those dots, I wasn't going to believe. And for me, it reached a point where, uh, in the course of two or three years, I don't have one of those dates, which some people really want. It annoys folks when they ask me, you know, what's your second birthday? 1972, June 30th? What? Huh? No, when, when were you born again, brother? Sometime between the age of 12 and 15, I don't know. Um, I just know beforehand, wasn't buying it. And afterwards, Christ was real. But once I did become a Christian, the doubts just went away, right? No. In fact, then it became a growth in my faith to tackle those, to handle those. And uh, I worry about those folks who don't have doubts once they become followers of Christ, I suspect that is a very weak and uh, a faith that's not very robust. And so the question we're dealing with as we're talking about being failed Christians or those who are seeking and searching, wondering if they want to be part of that same club of failures, <laughs> what does it mean to believe? Do we sometimes cry out? in desperation, in hopefulness, 
you know, God, oh, make me believe. It'd be so much easier if I could just believe. Or do we sometimes, with some rebellion and arrogance, dare God make me believe? I've been all over that spectrum. But is faith unbelievable? That's sort of the question, isn't it? Is faith something that we divorce our minds from? Is Jesus sort of looking for stupid? You know, is that, you know, is that his idea right there? That uh, says something both about his followers and him. I would contend that's not the case. That faith isn't unbelievable, and Jesus definitely is not interested in stupid. Um, so I hope I haven't just completely ruined your day by explaining that. Um, but what we're going to do is, uh, if you're confused, oh, shoot, here. We'll make it make some sense here by the end. But there's this wonderful person in Scripture who I think exemplifies some of this struggle, this journey of, of his faith unbelievable. You know, how does it make sense? What do I do with that? And it's someone that I, that I think is a fairly good representative in some ways of many of, many of us here at Artisan, and, in, and especially our friends and our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, someone who was very intellectual, um, somewhat scholarly, uh, had some influence, uh, had some privilege. And I don't think it's a, it's a mystery to, to describe some of the folks here at Artisan in that way. We are a fairly well-to-do, highly educated, uh, and even though we have a fairly young age range here, pretty influential. People of some privilege. Uh, I don't know if it's anything to be embarrassed about, probably something to uh, put to work. Uh, and as a church, we've, we've intentionally chosen to be in a part of Rochester, in a part of the city that, that has those features. Uh, the southeast part of the city of Rochester has you know, the highest educational rates, um, not just college degrees, but masters and multiple masters here in our congregation in, in this neighborhood, people pursuing doctorates, some here that, that are both pursuing, some who have them. So being intellectual, engaging the mind, I don't think is something we can ignore, both internally as a church community and as we engage the world around us. And so this person that, that I think connects with that idea is a man called Nicodemus. If you want to flip to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, and there's some Bibles there for you, or you can just follow along on the screen. Let's, uh, let's see who this Nicodemus is and some of the, the pattern that he, or the path that he takes as, uh, as he begs the question, is faith unbelievable? John, chapter 3. And this Nicodemus we're going to look at, he was a Pharisee, uh, which we often think of in negative terms if we've been in the church for a while. Probably not really fair. Those were folks who took God seriously, actually wanted to make it easier for people to experience God. They screwed it up pretty badly most days, like, like we do as well. But he was part of that contingent. Also, he was part of the ruling council, we believe, uh, called the Sanhedrin, the, uh, the Jewish council that the Roman Empire allowed to have some jurisdiction there in Jerusalem. And so, as I said, highly educated, uh, highly influential, a leader and a scholar. Uh, he sort of combined all the best features of a lawyer and a theologian. Uh, 
which is frightening, isn't it? You know, combining someone who thinks they're always right uh, with someone who thinks they're always right. Um, so here's Nicodemus, John chapter 3. It says, now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. So he's in that leadership council as well. And he came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. And Jesus answered him, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Where'd that come from? Because I don't think Nicodemus was asking those questions, was he? Nicodemus said to him, how? How? How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can anyone enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Hmm. So something has caused Nicodemus to at least approach Jesus and engage things that he doesn't yet get. Uh, And he's honest about that, quite forthright. How? How does this work? Jesus continues on, verses 5 through 9. It says, He answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you, and he's actually speaking in the plural there. If we were in the South, he'd say, you all. So Nicodemus might be representing some other folks. Jesus may realize that he's coming with questions that some of the other Pharisees and Sanhedrin and, and leaders have. And so he's responding to that. You all must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And just like all of us would at least think, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? How can these things be? And so is is Nicodemus failing? Is his lack of belief a sign of failure? Or is the way he's going about it tell us something else? To my mind, at least he wonders. And if you want to have like an unbelievable failure in your life, don't wonder. Just don't. Just don't wonder if stuff makes sense, how it works, if, if faith engages our life. If, uh, if, if you read Genesis 1, and you remember your flannel graph from Sunday school, was it seven literal days, or, or is that even what it says? If you took Tyler's Genesis Bible study a few weeks ago, and you may have the top of your head taken off, or you were put at ease. Um, don't wonder. Yeah, Tyler's back there. Uh, and so at least Nicodemus wonders. So t- For me, I don't think he's a failure. At least at this point, it's okay to have those questions. It's okay to ask them of Jesus. It's okay to push on the things that just don't make sense to us, whether they ever will or not. So Nicodemus wonders. And it's when we stop to wonder that I think it gets dangerous. That when our ideas have become these these calcified concepts 
that are impenetrable, that we know and will not change our mind. Whether we are not a Christian, or I think perhaps more dangerously, if we are, and we no longer wonder, I think we're in danger. In fact, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, we love quoting the dead guys around here. Um, that wouldn't include Jesus because he's alive, but I thought I'd throw that in there. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, fourth century, one of the early church fathers. This is what he said about, about the concepts that we love to just own. He said, concepts create idols. Only wonder understands anything. And so once we're locked in, it becomes very easy to almost worship that idea. Again, whether you're a Christian or not. And to no longer wonder, I think, is, is a huge failure. But to merely wonder is not enough. We can't just be in a constant state of wonderment. As, as enjoyable as that might be for some of us, uh, it needs to go somewhere. And so Jesus, being very meek and mild, a, a kind and gentle soul, uh, not given to being rude or pushing people's buttons, um, responds a little bit to Nicodemus here. And in a loving but firm manner, he does both affirm the wonderment, but challenges him to follow it through, to see where it might take him. So John chapter 3, verse 10, Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we, and I think he's speaking of himself and his disciples, speak of what we know, testify to what we have seen, so things you can actually observe, handle, touch, to the extent that you could apply the scientific method, laws of observation, at least eyewitness accounts that would hold up in a court of law, you know, we speak of these things, and yet, all of you do not receive our testimony. Just the basic observable stuff you reject. So if I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? So wonder has to lead somewhere. And I think Jesus is both affirming where Nicodemus is at, but to put the most positive spin on it, he's saying, you know, pace yourself. Start with the things that you might understand. I love how Holly put that in the video, that there's, there's parts of the Bible that, that do make sense, that, that just somehow align with how we think the world should work, in spite of the fact that it doesn't work that way at all. For some reason, we think it ought to click. But then what Scott Cranfield put in there, but then there's these horrifying passages of terror in Scripture. Why are they there? What do they mean? Start with the stuff that makes sense. Build from there. But we should build. It should go somewhere. And so, and so Nicodemus shows up again in the Gospel of John. And apparently, this has been churning in him, that the wonderment is leading him somewhere. And he's following that. And so we pick it up again in John chapter 7, verse 45. And what's been going on is Jesus has not, uh, has not taken a break. He's, uh, he's teaching, he's preaching, he's doing crazy stuff with 
fish and bread and coins out of fish's mouths, just these full of tricks. And, uh, and the crowds are gathering. And that bothers some of the leaders. They're bothered because their influence might be oh, undercut. They perhaps are fearful that it might look like a, yet another rebellion, which there'd been many of. There'd been all kinds of revolutionary leaders in the past few decades before Jesus showed up on the scene, and it always ended badly for the Jewish people. Rome crushed them again and again. And so maybe they're fearful of, of their people. Whatever their reason, uh, they want to exert their jurisdiction, and they send out some of their temple guards to arrest Jesus. And we pick it up. In verse 45, chapter 7, it says, Then the temple police went back to the chief priests and Pharisees, who asked them, uh, Why did you not arrest Jesus? You know, what's, we sent you, gave you one thing to do. And the police answered, Never has anyone spoken like this. It's like some of you guys that have cried to get out of a speeding ticket, right? It's, he got off the hook. He, he was amazing. Uh, I don't think Jesus cried and, and impressed them that way. I think uh, he was saying stuff that the content was profound in the way he said it. Just struck these temple guards who actually were not stupid people. Like I said, Jesus is not interested in stupid. Um, he really isn't. Uh, he, he just soon fixed that. These temple guards were trained Levite priests. So sure, they had the brawn. They also had some brains. And they were impressed. Never has anyone spoken like this. Then the Pharisees replied, Surely you have not been deceived too, have you? Has any one of the authorities, you know, this our Sanhedrin, or the Pharisees believed in him? Good question. But this crowd, or the people of the land that the rabbis and Pharisees like to call, the folks who don't observe the Jewish law because they're too poor, too stupid, too busy to go to temple, to do the sacrifice, to observe the law, These, this crowd, of course they'll be fooled by some Galilean peasant doing magic tricks with fish and bread, right? This crowd, which does not know the law, they are accursed. <laughs> they're already a lost cause. How condescending is that? Thankfully, we never do stuff like that. And Nicodemus, who had gone before, who had gone to Jesus before, and who was one of them, one of the Sanhedrin and Pharisees, he asked, Our law does not judge people without first giving them a hearing to find out what they're doing. Does it? And they replied, Surely you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search, and you will see that no prophet is to arise from Galilee. Maybe he's going to be born in Bethlehem, but they don't have that information. You know, whoops. Um, what's going on here? This is a, a wonderful example of some... Some actual, some brain physiology making its way into scripture. Uh, in fact, some things that we've only recently learned, or at least been able to, uh, to observe. We see this happening with the Pharisees and Nicodemus. 
this idea called cognitive dissonance, where how we handle things that information we receive, whether it lines up with things we already know or is at odds with stuff we already believe, and those things at odds create this dissonance. And you can see some of this deeply at work here. We like to tell ourselves, especially kind of an intellectual crowd like this, uh, or as we'd say in Maine where I'm from, some folks who are you know, wicked smart, you know, you people, uh, that we're very logical. That as we take in information, that we, are, uh, we come across a new idea, that we will in a very reasoned and rational manner just study it from all sides, take it apart, put it back together, figure it out. When in fact, at least what we normally do, what our instinctive knee-jerk response is, is not at all rational. Uh, We do not process information very logically, uh, at least without a lot of effort. In fact, if, uh, if new information comes in that fits our beliefs, we tend to say, what a fantastic idea that is. Of course, that makes sense. Love it. Great idea. If the idea or the concept is at odds or dissonant with what we already believe, well, then it's stupid. What a stupid idea. Only, only, only morons would believe that, right? Only Republicans buy that. Only Democrats could believe that. I probably missed some. Only Green Party people. <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure they're all high. Um, <laughs> I, I am. Uh, and so we want to resolve that tension. We want it to make sense. And so what we do is we often criticize, distort, and reject those things that don't fit. And we see this writ large in this passage, right? And those mental gymnastics we go through is called confirmation bias. It's our bias towards confirming the things that we already agree with and rejecting those that we don't. And if we were to put the Pharisees in an MRI machine, which would be really cool if we could do that, we would discover something. In fact, uh, neuroscientists very recently uh, did this during the last election cycle, which, uh, which was a bit controversial, if uh, some of you recall. Well, I think some of you were 12 then, so yeah, you're probably playing Xbox or something. But These neuroscientists gathered folks who had very strong political views, those who were strongly in favor of John Kerry and equally against George W. Bush, and those who were the exact opposite for George W. Bush and strongly against John Kerry. And they put him in an MRI machine and they presented them with with information. Information that I believe was was true or defensible, but cast a bad light on their particular candidate. And for those um, who had information come in that did not agree with their strongly held beliefs, as they did the MRI, they found out that the reasoning areas of the brain virtually shut down. They went dark. The lights were on, but no one was home. (laughs) Democrats, Republicans, everyone got stupid when it didn't agree with what they already believed. And when something came in that they did believe, 
the MRI, the emotional part of their brain just lit up like a 4th of July parade. They couldn't have been happier. They were as happy as Green Party people at that point. <laughs> and so what, they, what, we, what we know now, and we've always sort of instinctively known, is once our mind is made up, it is very hard to change. And we can fool ourselves. We can dismiss sort of the people of the land, the common folks who are terribly emotional. And again, I, I know who I'm talking to here. And we can convince ourselves that we are terribly intellectual. And the intellect is an equally fine place to hide our prejudice and our bias and convince ourselves otherwise. And so you see the Pharisees, and I think they failed. They failed to question. That was their unbelievable failure. Don't question. And so instead of actually engaging who Jesus was, what he said, what do they do? They mock, they make fun, they do ad hominem attacks about, you know, what are you, some, some Galilean? You on his team now? If you were a real Levite, we wouldn't have you out, you know, running patrols. You know, you'd be handling the sacrifices, but you're just some stupid, you know, guard. And yet Nicodemus doesn't merely wonder. He questions. He challenges his own bias, and he challenges the bias of those around him. And he doesn't get all emotionally distraught. He doesn't throw out ad hominem attacks, but he actually just states some facts. Here's how we've agreed that our legal system works. They don't even hear it. Their brains shut off. What are you, some Galilean? It's a failure not to wonder. But once your wonder takes you someplace, you need to start questioning. If you're a claim to be a follower of Christ and you don't question your faith, it will stay weak and underdeveloped. If you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not a believer and you don't ask hard questions like we're in the video, you will never get anywhere. And if you do, if for some reason it's, it's just a purely emotional, forget for a moment how, how spiritual and mysterious coming to faith in Christ is. I, I believe that and recognize that. But we've seen it happen where someone just makes an emotional decision. It's like that parable of the seed thrown in the rocky soil. Oh, sure. It jumps up real quick. It's all sunshine and flowers. And then it dies at the first hard thing that comes along. Got a question. And I think that's partly where Nicodemus continues, continues to succeed. Well, he doesn't get a very good response from the Pharisees there. But apparently something is going on in Nicodemus' life. And we see him once again, one last time. One last time where he is named um, in the scriptures. I think he probably shows up in some other places as part of the, the crowd of 500 and the room of disciples, 120 or so. I think he's likely there. I think you'll see why in a moment. But this is the last time we, we see him called by name. It's in John chapter 19. John chapter 19. 
starting in verse 38. And it says, after these things, what are these things? After Jesus has been crucified, he's dead. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of his fear of the Jews, and they're speaking of the, of the leadership, the rulers, the, the Sanhedrin. Once you're in charge, you get to capitalize um, stuff, I guess. Fear of the Jews. He asked Pilate to, take, to let him take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. And so he came and removed his body. Nicodemus, who had at first come to Jesus by night and is now coming in the full light of day, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about 100 pounds. And they took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices in linen cloths, according to the burial customs of the Jews. Now, there was a garden in the place where, they, where he was crucified. And in the garden, there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so, because it was a Jewish day of preparation, they need to get stuff done before sunset. They can't be handling a dead body. There's a bit of a time crunch here. Because of that, and because the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. What is Nicodemus doing? Shouldn't his questions and his wonderment be answered at this point? If ever there was a line of reasoning, a, a way of thinking, a, something to explore that reached a dead end, this was it. And yet he's doing something. He's taking a risk. To me, that is the greatest failure. Don't risk. When we struggle with these areas of belief and understanding and faith, it's risky. So what is Nicodemus risking here? Well, he is in the light of day, and he is there publicly handling the dead body of a crucified criminal whose crimes were sedition and rebellion against the Roman Empire, and he is now decided for some bizarre reason at the worst possible moment to identify himself with Jesus. And who knows if some Roman guards are taking notes. So there's a risk. He also risks how the Sanhedrin and the other Pharisees are going to now view him and treat him. Joseph the same way, who'd been a secret disciple for a while now. And when it makes the least sense... They both out themselves. Will they be rejected from the council? Will they be ridiculed, driven off? But I actually think those are minor risks. I think the biggest risk that Nicodemus is taking in this moment is he's risking his very identity. He is risking and maybe coming to the conclusion that what he hoped for where he, he deeply desired this journey of faith to take him, has in fact come to a dead end. And it's going nowhere. 
And who he thought he was, who he thought he was becoming, is done. He may be risking that this isn't the end of the story. That the rumors, the crazy things he vaguely recalls overhearing about the temple being destroyed and then Jesus rebuilding it in three days. I mean, I'm talking about, I will die, but I will come back. And does he mean, as the Pharisees believed, come back in the last days when everyone is resurrected? Or I, I think he threw a three in there somewhere. What, what was that about? And so Nicodemus is risking that he is either putting to rest and burying his hopes and dreams, or he's recalling something he overheard someone say once. Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, and maybe as they push that body reverently into the tomb, he's just wondering, where is this going to end? Are you willing to take those risks? It's one thing to wonder. And in fact, we're a culture that loves to wonder. We're church. Just, we just like wondering about stuff. I wonder. We also like to question, don't we? In fact, we've turned that into an art form. It's sort of the, the, the postmodern calling card. We question everything. And I think there's, there's some value to that. I don't reject that out of hand. I've been shaped by it, and I also find some value in that shift of worldviews and ways of looking at life, that there is much that should be questioned. But you had one of those friends that just questions everything. Oh, how annoying is that? <laughs> or your parent. Why is there a sky? Why is the sky blue? Why are some wavelengths of light shorter than others? You know, you know is it a wave or is it a particle? Mm, you know. Never shake a baby <laughs> until question 84, you know. No, no never shake a baby. Hard. Uh, <laughs> but beyond the questioning, we often just stop. We don't want to offend. We don't want to do anything. We don't want to challenge. We stay in the questioning mode. And in fact... I think for, for many of us, the reason that we might actually agree with the, the title of this series, that we're failed, whether failed Christians or failed at Christianity, pursuing it, understanding it, believing it, has more to do with what we're willing to risk than what we actually believe, our intellectual problems, our questions, our remaining doubts, that it, I, I contend it's often a question of, of whether or not we want to take a risk. If you're a follower of Christ and you're not willing to risk your faith, I question what good your faith is. I'd even question if it's real. It certainly doesn't matter to anyone. If you're not willing to put your faith out there in a way that says, all right, the teachings of Jesus, do they make a difference in my family's life? I don't want to risk that. Who cares then? 
Will it change the world around me if I just applied the easy-to-understand stuff? Forget about the crazy, hard, obscure things. Just the easy stuff. If I'm not willing to risk that, who cares? And why do you? If you're not willing to, to do that on your own, there will come an incident. There will be an event in your life that will happen to you or to a loved one or in the world around you, and it will just shred your memorized lullaby hymns and flannel graph theology. It will not stand. And you will have failed. But if you do risk, if you put it out there, here's what I've found. And how cool do you think it was three days later, a week later, a generation later, as Nicodemus, with a grandchild on his knee, said, I buried him. I risked. And I know for a fact he was dead. He is risen, and risen indeed. Your faith will be stronger. You'll be able to handle the failures that will come. Jesus will not have to work around stupid. He will get to work with wiser and stronger and more humble. That's strong language. That's sort of how family members should probably talk to each other at times. But not everyone here is, is a family member in that sense. I hope you think you're friends of the family, whether you're a guest here for the first time or not. So here's how I'd say it to friends. A little softer. Um, for some of you, here's my suspicion both from my own experience before being a Christian and now a few decades after, from my own interaction for those who have come to Christ in different ways and who still aren't, for some of you, it is not intellectual problems that are keeping you from coming to Christ. It is not the string of doubts and questions and a standard that you would never apply to whether your mom loves you or not, is friendship real, is my life of any value, that you just kind of assume are true. And in a sense, it's good to have a higher standard for who Christ is. But for some of us, we just don't want to risk that we've been wrong, that we'll have to change, that... that life will not be the same and it's a big unknown. I would encourage you to risk. I would encourage you to not merely wonder, do that. To not merely question, 
but to put it on the line. As Nicodemus says, just go all in and take the risk that comes with faith. Which side of faith do you want to risk doubting on? Do you want to take the risk that doubting on that side of faith is the, is the good risk? Or are you willing to cross that line of faith? And unless you miss the whole video and pretty much all of life, <laughs> the doubts will come with you on the other side of faith also. And are you willing to, to doubt from the other side of faith? As Jesus said, the spirit will blow where it wants to. It will move people's hearts. All the talking in the world can maybe help someone respond. It can't close a deal. That's going to be between you and God. But I hope some of you are ready to take that risk. Let's pray. God, we often cry out to you, either in anger or desperation, make me believe. And because of the God you are, you say no. We thank you that you are not a God who makes us believe. That you are not a puppet master. You are not a tyrant. But you are a father calling his children to come home and giving us the choice. And as we struggle and fail and fail and fail, we thank you for your grace that sustains us in that failure. In my prayer, God, as a pastor, as a Christian, and as a friend, is that each and every one of us would not fail to wonder, would not fail to question, and would especially not fail to risk. And that in the midst of the doubts, our prayers would be like that dad who approached you, Jesus, wanting you to heal his daughter and, and saying, if, Jesus, if you're able, uh, you can do it. And your response, Lord, was able. <laughs> For those who believe anything is possible, and let our prayer be like that father who said, I believe, help my unbelief. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.